0: Of The nameless uh, before we read our text for this morning, let me pray for us and ask for god's blessing, our heavenly father we do uh, we do ask for just that your blessing upon the the reading and the preaching and the the hearing of your word. Uh, we pray that you would do as you promised to do, which is as your word goes forth like the rain falling upon us, that you would cause it to, to grow up in us. Uh, we pray that you would grow us so that we would bear fruit some 30-fold, some 60-fold, and some 100-fold. And we ask you that you would do that by your spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. James, can I pray? Absolutely. Amen. Thanks, Dave. Uh, Let's read from 2 Kings chapter 4, the first seven verses. Now the wife of one of the sons of the prophets cried to Elisha, your servant, my husband is dead. And you know that your servant feared the Lord, but the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. And Elisha said to her, what shall I do for you? Tell me, what what have you in the house? And she said, your servant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. Then he said, go outside, borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty vessels and not too few. Then go in and shut the door behind yourself and your sons and pour into all these vessels. And when one is full, set it aside. So she went from him and shut the door behind herself and her sons And as she poured, they brought the vessels to her. And when the vessels were full, she said to her son, bring me another vessel. And he said to her, there is not another. And the oil stopped flowing. She came and told the man of God, and he said, go sell the oil and pay your debts, and you and your sons can live on the rest. Amen. Well, we're going to look at this uh, This. Relatively short text under, under three broad headers this morning. First, the bruised believer. Second, God's compassionate heart. And third, God's overflowing provision. Firstly, the bruised believer. Now, in, in, in one very short verse, we have an introduction to this woman and everything she has going on in her life. And we can all recognize and affirm this widow's predicament, but, but it really takes slowing down to see just all of the things that have compiled in her life and compounded her hurt and aggravated her. We hear, of course, first of all, that, that her dear husband, with whom she's raised at least two children, has passed away, probably unexpectedly, probably young. She is in dire financial straits, Both, I mean, you can see that both in the fact that her and her family have had to take out some sort of loan to begin with, and secondly, just that she has nothing to pay back this creditor with. They own nothing but a, a, nothing valuable, I should say, but a very, very small jar of oil, and that's not to say that that jar of oil was itself valuable, but to really just highlight that there was nothing, and now her two young boys are about to be taken away as slaves to pay back her debt. Uh, she has nothing, and she's about to lose even that. There, now we do have to say here, it, it, it's tough to say, I, I'm, I'm not sure there's really any sort of evidence here that that this creditor is being particularly cruel necessarily in taking away her sons. That this was a sort of uh, debt repayment that we see in the Old Testament that was uh, allowed by God to sell yourself or or possibly your children into slavery to make up your debt. It was provided for in the law of God, and it was also safeguarded so that, so that people would not be able to abuse that. Uh, that being said, those texts usually talk about selling yourself into slavery, not being taken into slavery. All that to say, we're, we're not really sure if this is all that cruel or not. There's also not really any evidence that there's been any sort of irresponsibility by this husband or wife or family in taking out a loan in the first place. This is not a text against taking out loans necessarily. Loans, again, were allowed in Scripture but also safeguarded and, and boundaries put in place so that they wouldn't be abused. Uh, in fact, there may even be a, a little clue here as to why they had to take out a loan in the first place. Really, the one phrase that we haven't uh, touched on yet in this widow's plea, you know that your servant feared the Lord. Now, remember the context, remember the nation, and remember the kings in Israel right now. Ahab and Jezebel, um, though I don't think they're ruling right now, it's, it's kings and queens of, of that nature. They're slaughtering God's prophets and mass. God's people are forced to hide in caves and have people bring food to them. It was costly to be a follower of the Lord right now. And so it may have been because of their very faith and commitment to the Lord that they had no money and nothing to begin with. And so they they try to find some relief. They try to get a little help and maybe taking out a a small loan, a small business loan, or um, just something to help pay the bills or something like that. And how are they repaid? With a kick in the teeth. Her husband passes away, and they have no hope of repaying this debt now. Costly sacrificial service, repaid with even more suffering. Uh, In our context now, this this may be like the, the blue collar kind of employee in the church who labors for god's glory he sees his work as as laboring for the lord he loves his co-workers well he wants to evangelize he wants to tell them about jesus and yet he keeps getting laid off it may be like actually if you kept reading in chapter four the shunammite woman the infertile and barren older couple who wanted nothing more than to have a child for years and they, they house Elisha the missionary. Whenever he comes by, they're, they're consistently doing good. Elisha blesses them with a the child after years of wanting one. And what does God do? He takes that child away. Dead as a young boy. We have feared the Lord and yet the creditor comes. God, I have done so much for you in the church and in my life. When will I get a break? Uh, The Lord has a message for those bruised believers. And it comes in the form of his his compassionate heart and his overflowing provision. So secondly, let's look at God's compassionate heart uh, now, it's been a minute since we've uh, talked about chapter 3, um, almost two months, but you have to understand chapter 4 here in relation to the previous one. How different is this widow's faith compared to the three kings of chapter 3? The three kings set out on their own to get some sort of job done. They were confident, they were self-assured, they were presumptuous, and it's not until the middle of their own mess that that, that they themselves made that they seek God. This widow immediately looks for Elisha. In fact, we we don't even get an introduction to her story, right? It it just goes straight into her plea. That's how we learn about her situation. More than that, this, this text goes really above and beyond to tell us about her faithfulness, how she just point by point did exactly what Elisha said. So he told her to, to go in, shut the door behind herself, and pour out the oil. And that's what she does. She goes in, shuts the door behind herself, and pours out the oil. Uh, now, some commentators uh, like to say that, uh, especially in verse 6, when it says there were no more vessels and the oil stopped flowing, well, if only she had more faith, she could have had more oil. If she had just collected more vessels, then she, she could have been even more provided for. But I, but I think you're utterly missing the point of the text, if that's the way you see this widow. She had the faith and she was faithful. And it really shows how God tends to work with his bruised believers. This is not just a widow who needs her debt repaid and her sons to be rescued from slavery. This is a child of God whose faith is on life support and needs to be revived. Right? She's somebody who served God faithfully, but it seems like He just keeps giving her bad things. And so God doesn't just drop the money or the oil from the sky and say, here's exactly what you need, but he actually tells her to obey. Because as she obeys, she's exercising her faith. She's strengthening it. She's building it up. She's building up her faith in the Lord. And it is far, far more important for every one of us when we're the bruised believer to keep our faith strong than to have our earthly needs met. Because it's when you do what God says and obey, even when you're having a hard time trusting him, that's faith. Even if it's a, a minuscule faith and you're, you're hanging on to God by a thread, yet if you continue to march forward and obey, that is Faith. And so when you're anxious, God tells you to to cast your cares on him and pray. He doesn't just immediately take those anxieties away or fix your life's problems. When you doubt, he tells you to, to read his word and to study and look for the answers that you need. When you feel isolated, when you feel like God is distant, he says, spend time with me. Spend time with my people. Remember my promises. Have other people remind you about those promises because, yes, through prayer, he gives peace that surpasses all understanding. In his word, he gives us assurance. Through the body of Christ, he shows love. But also, as you do those things, you are obeying and you are growing your faith. And all of those different types of trials, they're trying to choke out your faith, Again, the major problem here is not just the sons. It's that her faith is being choked out. And that's why God tends to work with us in ways that stimulate our faith rather than just fixing our problems. Because it is far, far better to have strong faith and many trials than to have no faith and no trials. But here's another contrast between chapter three and chapter four. It's in God's response. God's response to the people who cry out to him. So how does Elisha respond to the three kings when they finally approach him? He's like, you foolish and wicked men. I shouldn't listen to you for a second. How does he respond to this nameless, indebted widow? He writes her a blank check. The little tiny flask of oil, probably probably the size of our little red jar of oil that you may or may not have noticed sits up here uh, every Sunday morning. Probably that big. It turns into a fire hydrant of oil and she just keeps pouring and pouring and pouring. And that is God's heart on display. Uh, In fact, I think there's a a little bit of a play on words here uh, in the Hebrew when it says in verse one that this, this widow cries to Elisha, And coincidentally, the the command that he gives her is to to pour out. Those two words sound very, very similar in the Hebrew. Uh, It's not very pretty uh, in the Hebrew. And so if we were to get the sense of what comes across in the English, it might be something like, When you cry, he supplies. When you mourn, he pours. Every time you shed a tear, he will hear. Uh, If I may, at the risk of um, maybe sounding a little sacrilegious, what is it that animates God? What gets God excited? What riles him up and, and causes him to move and affects his heart? Now, I can tell you myself, as a husband and as a father, nothing animates me more than seeing my wife or my two boys hurt. And that's the same way with God. Nothing animates him more than to see his bride or his sons and daughters in pain. Hurt, oppressed, wayward. Nothing moves his heart like his children. And so this is all over scripture. Deuteronomy chapter 10. Just for one instance, The, the Lord your God is a God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. And why is he the God of gods and Lord of lords and great and mighty and awesome? He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow, and he loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Exodus chapter 22 Uh, Coincidentally, just before a passage about selling yourself into slavery, he says, "'You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. And if you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry, and my wrath will burn, and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless.'" And of course, Matthew 12, which we read earlier, quoting from Isaiah 42, he will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. What animates and activates God's heart? Helplessness and oppression. His hurting people. What does that helplessness and that oppression look like? Let's just take some examples from from our country. For one, over the last 50 years, it's been babies in the womb. Literally nameless. Literally unable to fight back. Unable to make their own plea. No voice to speak. God's heart goes out to them. For years beyond that, and the black community, imprisoned and enslaved from a foreign country, strung up and lynched, purely for the color of their skin, having fire hoses and dogs turned on them. Here's another example: uh, wives and children being abused by husbands and fathers. The general assembly this past week, we we heard an entire report about domestic abuse and sexual assault. And you might think, why in the world did we have to do that? Of, of course everybody knows that's wrong. Of course, of course we, we hate that. Uh, why do we need to do a whole study about it? Because it's so prevalent. You've heard the stories from, uh, from the culture over the last few years. You've seen the scandals in the church. And because it is such an affront to God, because it goes completely opposite of his character, what does God do with his power and his authority? He doesn't abuse people, he doesn't beat them down and crush them. He he, he gives an infertile couple children, miraculously. That's what he does with his power. He provides fish and bread for 5,000 people who are hungry, sitting on a seashore. That's what he does with his power and with his authority. He loves and he cares for, and he goes above and beyond for his children and for his bride. That is God's character, to reach out to those oppressed and hurt people. It doesn't matter if it's the circumstances that that have beat you down or your trial's you know what, it doesn't actually even matter if it's your own sin that puts you in that mess. When you come to Jesus with your trials and with your sin, he doesn't stand back with his arms crossed, head tilted, and say, you should have done this and this and this and then you wouldn't be in this mess. He doesn't scoff and reluctantly bail you out again. No, He, he puts his hands, he, he cups his hands around the smoldering wick And he feeds it oxygen, and he feeds it kindling, and he feeds that flame until it grows again. He is compassionate and tender and gentle. He stoops down onto one knee and and draws us in with cords of kindness, arms outstretched to take you back, to be your help, to be everything that you need, to give you everything. He wants you to come back to him. Our Lord and our Savior is is not the kind of Lord and Savior that stays with the 99 sheep because that's 99%. That's good. I'm comfortable. He goes and he pursues the one because he loves them. That's the kind of tone that he takes with us as his children. He is merciful and compassionate. Jesus, just, just in the uh, previous chapter to what we read, uh, at the end of Matthew chapter 11, he is gentle and lowly. He is accessible and he is approachable. He is not harsh. He does not mock. In fact, Christ died for the weak and the ungodly and the sinners. And that's the tone that he takes with you This his children. He draws you back with the cords of kindness. He wants you to come to him to be the refuge and the the place where your soul can retreat when you need it. Uh, Now, this is meant to be a, a comforting and encouraging sermon, but if I can just convict us for a moment, is that the heart posture you take towards sinners? Is your heart mimicking Christ's heart? Does your uh, wayward love, loved one, recognize your compassion for them. Do you avoid certain people on Sundays because you just don't want to deal with that person? Would your non-Christian neighbor call you humble and approachable, gentle and lowly like Jesus? Or, especially on uh, our polarized political climate, it needs to be said, Would those on the other side of the aisle be able to honestly say that you are a Christian who does not mock or insult or revile when those things are thrown at you? That's how Christ responded to his mocking and insult and reviling with nothing in return, nothing but love. And our hearts need to mimic Christ's hearts to the point that we love other people Uh, and be willing to die for them as he did. God's heart is is compassionate and gracious and merciful to his children at all times. But this is not just a passage about God's heart. Thirdly, finally, and, and a little more briefly, this is also a passage about God's overflowing provision because he does actually do something for this widow, He doesn't just say, I wish you well and then send you on your way. He actually does something for her. And in the background of this whole story is Leviticus chapter 25, uh, a passage you may not be familiar with. It says, if a stranger or sojourner with you becomes rich and your brother beside him becomes poor and sells himself to the stranger or sojourner with you or to a member of the stranger's clan, then after he is sold, he may be redeemed. One of his brothers may redeem him, or his uncle or his cousin may redeem him, or a close relative from his clan may redeem him, or if he grows rich, he may redeem himself. And this is one of those passages that touches on, you could sell yourself into slavery to pay back your own debt, but it also says that you can be redeemed. You can be bought back. course, there's there's an ultra-famous example of this, uh, which is Ruth and Boaz. Uh, Boaz and and then his son Obed end up being the the kinsman redeemer, the close family member that, that, that buys back Naomi and Ruth and everything that they had lost. And God, through Elisha, is acting preemptively as a kinsman redeemer for this nameless widow. He is paying their debts, and he is rescuing the sons from slavery. Just like Jesus, who redeems our lives from the pit and pays the debt that we could not. And yet, that's not the end of the story. Don't forget the very, very last clause, the very, very last phrase that Elisha says in verse 7 not just pay your debts, but you and your sons can live on the rest. God provides more than the debt that they owed. He provides them enough so that they could live on all of the rest. They never have to worry about it again, unafraid of their future, never risking going back into debt or slavery again. That's the same for the New Testament Christian. Romans chapter 5 is a, a great parallel text here that says, Therefore, since we have been justified justified being the idea of our debt being paid, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Now there's a, there's a lot wrapped up in that paragraph But suffice to say, because of Christ's work in dying for us, the ungodly, because of his work justifying us and paying our debt, we have obtained access by faith into God's grace. Not past tense, present tense. We have access to God's present grace all the time. A direct pipeline from the Father to you through Christ, grace any time you need it, if you just ask. He doesn't save you and justify you and then push you out in the world to fend for yourself like the mama bird pushing the baby out of the nest. No, he is always with you and you have everything that you need if you have Christ. You are adopted into his perfect family. You have the wealthiest You have the most generous and you are the most powerful father in the world. And he is giving you grace all the time when you need it. And so, Christian, do not lose heart. You may be afflicted, but you are not crushed. You may be perplexed, but you are not driven to despair. You may be persecuted but you are not forsaken. You may be struck down, but you are not destroyed. The grace and the power are there for those who need it. And you can be certain of that, that he will give you what you need because it's not dependent on you. You can't turn that pipeline on and off. It's dependent upon Christ and his work. And you know what? His work is done And that pipeline is always on. His grace is always coming. So do not give up praying. Do not give up hoping. And do not forget who you belong to. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord God, we do confess. We know that your grace never fails us. That your mercy and your compassion never come to an end. And yet we have a hard time believing that. And so we pray that through all of our affliction, even through our own sin, some of us have wandered away from you. Many of us are going through, through very difficult trials. We pray that you would show your grace be our provision, be our good father. Give us also compassionate hearts to mimic Christ, to be like him. As we have been loved and forgiven, Lord, help us to love others. Transform us in our heart, and in our mind and in all of our actions. And we pray all these things. in.